All right, we have been studying the exponential growth of the church through the book of Acts. We're walking through just one chapter at a time uh, through the book of Acts. And last time we looked at the birth and growth of the first multicultural church in history. Uh, the, the church at Antioch was not just Jewish. It was uh, a lot of different ethnicities and cultures all coming together for the very first time. This was a, a radical point in history. We looked at how Saul and Barnabas actually tag team pastored that church, taught them for a year until they were sent out with financial support to uh, the churches in Judea uh, because there was a coming famine. As it turns out, the greater risk wasn't going to be from a natural disaster, but from an evil king, the King Herod. And we're going to read about that this morning in Acts chapter 12. So if you'll find your place in Acts 12, uh, I want to ask you some questions. How do you respond when you are under attack? Do you keep your cool? What about when someone you love is attacked? Maybe for you, it's uh, that's harder. What about if it's your spouse or your children under attack? You know, many of us probably would not respond well in these situations. You know, if you... Uh, if you don't believe me, just go down to the ball field at the Little League uh, sporting event and you can, you can watch. Usually you'll find one or two or three parents who are uh, furiously and aggressively defending their child uh, at what they feel like is oppression or whatever. You know, maybe their, their kid's having to ride the bench or uh, there was a bad call on the field or something drastic happened and a parent feels the need to, to rise up and defend the one that they love. And... That's not all bad, you know, Um, to an extent it is, but it's not all bad. We tend to act out our emotions, right? Especially to defend the ones we care about. Well, in our text this morning, we see that the church is under attack. We're going to see how James, one of the one of the three in Jesus's inner circles, James is murdered viciously. Peter is arrested The violent hands of the enemy are at work. And so we'll notice how the church responds to these attacks. They respond by gathering in prayer, earnest prayer. And as they pray, God breaks in to rescue. Would you, I know you just got settled in, but would you stand with me as we read from Acts 12? Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. 
And the chains fell off of his side, uh, fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He, he did not know that he was, what was being done by the angel was real, but instead he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along this one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's, it's his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. <laughs> and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Lord, plant this truth deep within us that our prayers matter. Help us to be a church that prays earnestly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I tell you, I love this story. It is infused with the kind of detail and touches of humor that remind us that Luke has compiled all of these accounts from firsthand eyewitnesses. I mean, listen to how this story is told. Can't you just imagine Luke hearing Peter and maybe some of the others, maybe even Rhoda, chiming in to give the various perspectives on how this miraculous jailbreak took place? Maybe John is standing there and he's like, Luke, we were all just praying to God to be merciful and that, that he would rescue Peter. And then Rhoda heard something. She went to the door and then Rhoda chimes in. She says, yeah, I went to the door. I, I got there. I heard somebody knocking. And I, I thought, oh, who is that? It sounds just like Peter. I got so excited. I ran back inside. Meanwhile, Peter goes, yeah, yeah. And she left me standing out there in the dark. I mean, here I was just set free from prison. I mean, I had jail, jail bars open for me and I can't get this girl to open the door. <laughs> Can you imagine this, the humor, the details that, that we get? Maybe all of them laugh. Well, these are the stories that bring the beautiful gospel to life. They're real people enduring real suffering and trusting in the power of a real God. 
Now, Peter's part of the story is wonderful. He was rescued, right? But what about James? Consider how James may have, or how John may have felt. James's brother. You know, these are the sons of thunder, remember? These are the boys whose mother came to Jesus and said, would you let my son sit at your right hand when you're in glory? And Jesus said, that's not mine to give. Uh, And Jesus talked to the boys and he said, can you you, um, drink of the cup that I will drink of? Can you be baptized with what I'll be baptized with? And James and John both looked boldly back at Jesus and said, yes, we can. Little did they know Jesus was talking about his own suffering and his own death. James and John were the best of brothers, right? They were brothers. Think about how John may have felt in these moments. His brother, possibly best friend, had just been beheaded. Maybe John would say to Luke, look, I don't know how it happened. It, it all just happened so fast, you know. They just they came in, they just grabbed James, they snatched him up, and took him. There wasn't anything we could do. They took him out into the public square and they just asked him if he followed Jesus and proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God. And just as soon as he got the words out of his mouth, the sword took his life. We barely had time to even process it all and to grieve. We were so scared. I mean, why James? Why not me? Why not Peter? And at that moment, they barged in again and grabbed Peter. And we were all like, no, not Peter. Why? What do you do? Imagine how the story is being told to Luke and all the feelings that are wrapped up in the retelling of the story. Luke is trying to capture that for us. What we see here is that the aftermath of some really hard suffering, the murder of James, very swift, very quick, decisive murder of James, and then the arrest of Peter. How does the church respond? Do they look to retaliate, you know, the way Peter did when Jesus was arrested with the sword? Do they look to come in with violence, to to fight back violent hands with more violent hands? No, they they rally together in prayer. What we see is that the church scatters, not like they did at Jesus' arrest, into hiding. They scatter into prayer. They gather together in small groups, believe it or not. You know, the church at this time is about 10,000 people, maybe more, many believe. And about 10,000 people can't rally together in one little place. And so they rallied together in homes all over the city They came together in their uh, life group, we might call it, their small group for prayer and community. And they, they pull together and they're praying. The scriptures say that many of them gathered at Mary's house to pray. Now, this is Mary, who's the mother of John Mark, who is going to join Paul on some missionary journeys and be Barnabas's partner. What we see about the church is that they're desperate. They were heartbroken from losing James and are now gripped with fear about what might happen to Peter. So where do they run? What do they do? Where do they turn? They go to the one in whom they always trust. 
they go to the Lord. I want us to pull out three truths of how Jesus is glorified through the church in this season, okay? The first one is this. Jesus is glorified in the faithful death of his followers. Jesus is glorified in the faithful death of his followers. Kind of a somber tone to begin this morning, but it's just right from the text. The first three verses of this chapter, um, we have this in verse two. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, that's a very short statement of the first martyr of the first apostle. It's very short considering the first martyr was Stephen. And we heard all about his death in Acts chapter seven, a whole chapter, 50 some odd verses about Stephen's last sermon, his last um, uh, he's arrested, his last breath, his last prayer. We hear all of those things as they stoned him to death. And in Stephen's last moments, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God as he died. Stephen prayed almost the exact same words Jesus prayed from the cross. Father, forgive them. Stephen's death glorified Jesus. Stephen's death spread the gospel of Jesus. And now James is killed by the sword. It's amazing to me that there's only one little verse about James's death. We don't have a whole chapter. We don't even know what he said at the end of his life. We don't hear how he may have, you know, argued or disputed or maybe witnessed to the soldier, not from the biblical text. But James was killed because of his faithfulness to King Jesus. And sadly, he was killed for a political advantage. He was killed so that Herod could win political points with the Jews. James's death and Peter's arrest prove once again that Jesus is worth suffering for. We said uh, last time that suffering is inevitable and God's mission is unstoppable. Well, this morning I want to add one more to that. Suffering is inevitable, but Jesus is worth it. I want to talk to you about suffering for just a moment. Jesus promised suffering. Jesus promised suffering. In Matthew 5, verse 10, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep among what? Wolves. Does that sound like an easy journey? Mm -mm. So Jesus warns, he says, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In John 16, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And then he says, because in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus promised suffering. This is just a selection of these promises. He promised hardship. And later on, Peter is going to write to us and say, don't be surprised when evil comes against you. Expect it, Peter says. We should expect it. Jesus promised it. He promised suffering, but he provided for suffering. 
Jesus provided for it. He has not left us hopeless. Church, this is good news. Christ has given us his spirit for comfort and his resurrection for confidence. You need to hear that. He's put in you his spirit for comfort and his resurrection for confidence. He has not left us hopeless. The Apostle Paul will later write uh, at least in two places. One in particular in Philippians, he writes from jail, right? From suffering, he writes to the church and he says, um, he says, it, it doesn't really matter whether I die or live. He says in Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Jesus Christ and to die is, anybody know? Gain. How can he say death is gain? He can only say it through the hope of the resurrection of Christ. Death is gain if you know Christ. Paul is going to write again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's writing to comfort those who are dying because of their faithfulness to Jesus. And he writes and says, I'm writing this, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Death is only asleep for a believer. Christ himself will awaken us just like the angel awoke, woke Peter in the jail. Christ himself will awaken us from slumber and we will be with him forever. Jesus provided for our suffering and Jesus purposes our suffering to advance his mission. Because of Stephen's death, remember the first martyr, because of Stephen's death, the gospel of Christ advanced outside of Jerusalem. You know, had it not been for Stephen dying, the church may have stayed right there in Jerusalem. It may have just become a a messianic Judaistic sect. What I mean is. It may have just become another little spinoff of Judaism and stayed among the Jews. But because of the harsh persecution and the murder of Stephen, the church of Jesus scattered. And if you remember in Acts 8, it says they scattered preaching the word. And we learned when we read through Acts 8 that what the enemy means to stomp out the gospel only serves to spread the gospel. And that is the truth. Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church, on his hot pursuit to Damascus, he met Christ on that road. Christ saved his soul, brought him into the mission. And now Saul has gone to Antioch to pastor the church that will to pastor the church that started out of his persecution that is now going to send him to be the greatest missionary of all times. You couldn't you couldn't write this story if you tried It's it's our God who is sovereign over our suffering. He actually purposes our suffering to advance his mission. It reminds us of what what Joseph learned in Genesis chapter 50. After his brothers sold him into slavery, they threw him in a pit. They they abandoned him. It was like 15 or 17 years of suffering and hardship of being betrayed, of being falsely accused of all those things. And then God finally exalted Joseph to the place of being um, the one who uh, stored enough grain to save all those people. 
And when his brothers came to him, Joseph had the wherewithal to look at them and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus purposes our suffering to advance his mission. Listen to this. Martyrdom in the church causes the multiplication of the church. We said last time that the good news of the suffering Savior will be spread through the faithfulness of suffering servants. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, the student is not greater than his master. So if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Jesus also told him, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Because that's all he can do to you. But fear the one who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell. And Jesus is telling us, what, they're going to kill you? Is that all they've got? Because I've already provided for that. If death is all you have to fear, stay the course. So Jesus is glorified in the death of his faithful people. And secondly, Jesus is glorified in the desperate praying of his church. Acts 12 verses 5 and 12, we find this church gathered for prayer. We see them on the heels of some of the harshest persecution and fear they've ever met. We see them unified in earnest prayer. It's amazing the kind of fellowship that develops in times of adversity. Uh, just Friday night, we, we were there on the sidelines with Aniston's football team. They're 0-5, right? They've, they've not done well this season. And Friday night, they come together. This is the most unified I've ever seen this team. They come together and they fought. They fought as one unit. Now, they've faced a lot of adversity up to this point. They've, they've not done well, but Friday night, they did really well. They came out with the win. Something about adversity pulls us together. Something about sharing hurt and sharing pain and sharing in suffering. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about this. He says, I count all things lost for the sake of knowing Christ. He's going to go on and say, and the fellowship of his suffering. The fellowship of his suffering. We see this church unified in earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. This church prayed as a family and they prayed fervently. Someone once said, desperate times call for, anybody know? Desperate measures. This is desperate kind of praying. I want to ask you, church, when is the last time you were in desperate prayer? I mean, really. Think for a moment of the last time that you dropped to your knees and cried out to your God. I remember the night at the dining room table. We were laughing and telling stories. And one of my daughters laughed with food in her mouth and it got lodged. Her expression immediately changed from laughter to fear. We didn't notice at first. Took us a moment and then... We saw her eyes and clutching at her throat. It was one of the scariest moments I can remember as a dad. I felt so out of control. What can I do? How can I help? I remember we cried out to God to save our baby. 
Not even a year ago, I was at the gym in my morning workout routine. I was on the elliptical, had headphones in, on the, listening to a podcast. This man next to me, he was a normal. He and I worked out that machine uh, side by side almost every day. Massive heart attack. He just fell over in the floor. I didn't know what to do. Panicked for a minute, called his name, got down on my knees, tried to get his attention. Didn't know what to do, just began to cry out, Lord, please keep him alive. Lord, please help. Crowd started to gather. We started doing chest compressions. I'm just praying. Others in the crowd, God, save him, help him. Desperate prayer. I remember several phone calls in the middle of the night. One of my best friends called me one night. He'd been caught in an affair. The grief, hurt in his voice, the anger. His family was in deep crisis. And I love him. Our hearts were broken for them. It was middle of the night. We rolled out of bed, dropped to our knees and just wept for our friends. God, please give them the grace to forgive. God, help them to heal. Please, Jesus, please. These are desperate prayers. Even now, I'm eagerly praying for some wonderful friends, people I love, but they don't know Jesus. I want so badly for God to open their eyes to see Christ the way I see him, for them to know that Jesus wants to save them. And so I pray and cry out to God to Save them, Lord. Please draw them. Please. These are desperate prayers. This church gave themselves to earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. We see in the text they prayed together personally. Verse 5 says they prayed for Peter. There were earnest prayers for Peter to God by the church They were gathered praying personally for Peter. They prayed for a long time. They prayed persistently. Jesus taught us to pray that way when he gave several stories about the the widow who who pleaded with the the evil judge. And she just wouldn't leave him alone until finally he granted her justice. And the Lord commended her persistence. The Lord Jesus told us to pray like the man who came in the middle of the night knocking on the door wanting bread because he had visitors. And the guy said, hey, man, I'm I'm in the bed. We got my family. We're all asleep. Leave us alone. He just wouldn't stop knocking. Until the man said, I'm going to get up because this guy's getting on my nerves, right? And he goes and gives him the bread that he has. And the Lord Jesus says, I want you to pray persistently like that. He says to keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking, pray like this. This church prayed persistently. And we know they prayed with passion. We know they loved Peter. They were hurt and wounded by the death of James. And so they prayed earnestly, fervently that God would intervene. I want you to know that prayer is not a waste of your time. It is not just empty, wishful words. It is not just a praying hands emoji that you text or you post on somebody's social media. That's nice, but it's not prayer. Prayer is speaking to almighty God. Prayer is bringing your heart and your request before God and asking him to do something. 
Church, prayer assumes, it presumes a lot. Have you thought about what prayer presumes? It presumes that God is listening. Prayer presumes that God cares. And it presumes that God acts. It would be pointless if those things were not true. These are huge ideas, but Jesus taught us to pray believing these things. He taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, right? We get to come to him like children. I don't know if you have children, but my kids can walk up to me at any point, and they do. And they interrupt some really important moments sometimes. So deep conversations, they'll just come up, grab me, pull, pull on my leg, daddy, daddy, daddy. And, and so I, hey, um, is this important? Because you're interrupting. Yep, yeah, daddy, it's important. Okay, what is it? Um, um, daddy, um, um, daddy, um, do, do you, um, do you, do you know where my shoe is? No, baby, I don't know where your shoe is, but I love you. I want to tell you, there's no other interruption like that that's acceptable, right? But these are my children. And they can interrupt me at any time for any reason. I'm their father. Hear this. God is your father. And he beckons you for interruptions. He wants you to come and interrupt him. He wants you to come and tell him whatever it is. Because he listens. And he cares. And I want you to know something. God acts Do you notice after Peter is rescued and he goes and tells his friends that he's safe, who does he tell them to go and tell? He says, I want you to go tell James and the brothers. Now, I'm guessing they're in a different life group uh, in somebody else's house. You keep you hear the shameless plug for life group. Um, They're at somebody else's house. And so Peter's like, be sure you you go tell James and the other brothers. Well, James, this is not the James that was killed. Obviously, this is James, the half brother of Jesus. And he will later write the most practical book in the New Testament with some of the most pungent words about prayer. Listen, I love how James, practical James, believed in the power of prayer. I wonder if we believe this. In James chapter 5, he says that if you're sick, you can call on the elders of the church to come and lay hands on you and to pray over you for healing. And James beckons us to believe that God will act James 5.15, he says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. These are strong, bold statements by practical James. He goes on to say in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. As it is working. As what is working? Prayer. This this book tells us that prayer works. If you didn't believe it, he goes on to explain how Elijah. He says, now, Elijah, a man just like you and me, he wasn't special. He was just a regular old guy. He says, but Elijah prayed fervently. There's that word again. That it would not rain, that it would not rain for three and a half years. And the Bible says it did not rain on the earth. 
Not just that it didn't rain in his town or his city or his region or his country. It did not rain on the earth for three and a half years. It's powerful prayer. Right? Then James says, then he prayed again and it rained. Just to make sure you knew it was his prayer that mattered. Here's the point. Prayer matters. And if we truly believe that our prayers could stop or bring rain, could heal a sick person, or could break our prisoner friend out of jail, we would pray, right? If we genuinely believe that prayer had that effect, we would pray, right? Would you pray more earnestly? Church, I want you to consider this a call to desperate Earnest, fervent, faithful prayer. The third truth we see from this text is that Jesus is glorified in the powerful deliverance of his people. Be quick here, but I want you to see this in our text. Peter is delivered. Praise God. His friends are so excited that he has to motion for them to turn it down. I mean, they're having a praise break, right? He's like, God, I don't want to get arrested again. Turn, bring it down a little bit. I love that. We love to sing about our God as the chain breaker, right? We just sang that this morning. He's a chain breaker. And he certainly is. He's our rescuer. Peter walked out into the streets. The angel left him. And in verse 11, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter said, the Lord has rescued me. Can you say that? Can you believe that? Do you know that's true in your own life? God has always shown his glory through deliverance. Quickly, God delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh in Egypt. Hundreds of years of slavery and oppression and evil. And then through the power of a delivering God, they walked through the parted waters of the Red Sea on dry ground because God is a great deliverer. Amen. God delivers the Israelites from many of their enemies. The Moabites, the Ammonites came against them in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This opposing army vastly outnumbered Israel. King Jehoshaphat comes together brings the people together and he prays before God. Publicly, he prays this way, such humility. He says, oh God, we are powerless against this great army. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a beautiful prayer. And our great God fought their battle for them. They didn't have to lift a weapon. He is the great deliverer. God delivered his people from the taunts and the threats of the giant Goliath. Using the sling and the stone of a little shepherd boy. (laughs) King David reminds us of the one true king. Jesus ultimately won the battle against sin, death and hell. When he died on a cruel cross and rose again victoriously from the grave. He is the ultimate deliverer of all who put their faith and hope in him. Maybe today you are here and you're still imprisoned by your sin. You're still chained to guilt on one arm and shame on the other. Jesus can loosen those chains. In Christ, you can stand up and walk out of that prison. Jesus can set you free 
Look to Christ. He is the great deliverer. Amen. Here's some takeaways for us, church. Number one, suffer well. Suffer well. Jesus is worth it. And what do you have to fear anyway? What can they do? Kill you? Jesus says not to fear the one who can kill your body. Jesus has provided for that. Secondly, pray fervently. Pray fervently. Our God listens. Our God cares. And our God acts when we pray. Thirdly, trust Christ as the deliverer and praise him for rescue. If you've never put your hope in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that today. Look to Christ to set you free from sin. Hard as you may try, you will never be able to get away from it apart from him. But in Christ, you can be set free immediately. Jesus Christ can touch you and set you free. Church, I do have a practical application for us today. I want to invite you to do something with me specifically this week. I want to invite you to join me for seven days in a fast. I want to invite you specifically to a social media fast. I would love for us to just delete those apps off of our devices and disconnect from the world so that we can reconnect to our Savior. To disconnect and unplug from all of the things that suck our time and influence our minds. Let's disconnect and unplug so that we can plug in to Christ and be satisfied in Him. For some of you, social media is no big deal because you don't use it. So maybe this this call doesn't seem to impact you. So I want to encourage you to think about what are the time suckers in your life? Maybe it's TV. Maybe you sit up late and play uh, solitaire or something like that. I don't know. Uh, All I'm saying is I want you to unplug from some of the things that are not pushing you to trust in Christ. Disconnect from all of that this way. Horizontal disconnection, vertical reconnection. That's what fasting is all about, is to unplug and plug in this way. So church, obviously this is your personal decision, but I want to invite you to join me in earnest prayer. If there's one thing we learn from this passage today, it's this. Prayer matters. Amen? Prayer matters. Let's look to Christ. And let's take our every concern and every need to him today. As our worship team comes, I actually want to encourage you to make the most of these moments. I would love to see uh, this area down here filled with people just taking advantage of a few minutes to pray. That area over there, we've designated it for prayer. I'd love to see it used more and more. This is a great moment to do that, to just lean in and say, Jesus, I want to be a man or a woman of desperate, earnest, faithful prayer.